Our text this morning is 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. I'm going to talk about uh, some arrows in the quiver of the Lord, and uh, let's see if we can bring that up. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. It says in the King James, King James Version, or the New King James Version, it says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Let's keep moving through that. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, I want to share another passage with you, which you'll be familiar with, from Ephesians 6, 12, about the armor of God. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, if we really stopped and thought about what we were reading here, um, somebody on the outside that's not familiar with a biblical worldview would think we were sort of fanatical. Because what we've just read is that we are engaging enemies that you can't see and that are not part of this realm or this dimension. Um, to bring it to our current day, following the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh as the justice to the Supreme Court, uh, Charisma News Online lit up with articles about witches that were gathering to put a hex on him. Shortly after that, Another article was published with a specific prayer Christians could pray to defeat the hex. It wasn't a political comment at all. It wasn't whether you were left or right, a Republican or Democrat. They were just saying witches were getting. In fact, one of them convened over 10,000 witches to put a hex on uh, our new Supreme Court justice. Now, totally unrelated to that, shortly thereafter, an article was published by Charisma Online and it said security, this is the headline, security camera catches picture of angel with a sword. Now, they showed the picture. A security camera caught this picture. Now, first thing I thought is this has been photoshopped. You know, this thing is, is somebody's created this. But Charisma Online, you know, they're a pretty credible news agency, and I'm sure they researched it first. So I don't know whether it was the real deal or not, but nevertheless, it was there. Now, we've just come through Halloween season, right? Just came through Halloween, and every time there's Halloween, um, there are tons of articles published in Christian periodicals about why we shouldn't celebrate Halloween because of the reality of the dark world, what we just read about. Um, and it doesn't matter to me which side of that you are on. Uh, the last article I saw was 11 reasons why Christians should not do Halloween. Well, it so happens that I grew up in a home where we did Halloween. And uh, so our children, who are all serving the Lord today, did Halloween. And our grandchildren do Halloween. In fact, our kids were gone, and so four of the, four of the children, in fact, it turned out we were with several of the kids, did Halloween together this year. But I will tell you that while I was out there walking the neighborhoods with the kids and we were getting the candy and that kind of stuff, I saw lots of witch costumes. I saw lots of devil costumes. I made it a point to look. And I saw lots of ghost costumes. And they weren't only on children. They were on adults, too. I, I had forgotten. It's been so long since I've been out on Halloween night, I'd forgotten that some of the parents that walk around with their kids dress up in costumes, and some of the homes you go to, they dress up in costumes to greet you at the door. Again, not talking at all about which side of that you were on. In contradistinction to that, let's move forward to this next holiday season we're moving into. As we pass Thanksgiving, we go into Christmas. And we will read here in the church and churches all across the nation. There are about 370,000 of them, by the way, if you didn't know that. Uh, more closing each year than are being planted. But uh, that's not our subject this morning. In those churches, they will read out of Luke chapter 2, probably, the Christmas story. And as they read that story, even before the actual birth of Jesus, an angel comes to Zacharias, the father of John, right? 
an angel comes to Mary. An angel comes to Joseph. An angel comes to the shepherds. I think maybe that's a passage in Luke chapter 2 that I ask, ask to be put up, if I can uh, remember that. Oh, that's later on. Let's, let's don't even go there. Well, you found it already. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. We, we know it from memory. We've heard it so many years, don't we? And on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When, um, when I came to Christ as a teenager in high school, um, I didn't have a biblical worldview at all. I was attending, I was churched. I just wasn't a born-again Christian, so I didn't have a biblical worldview. So because of that, it would be true to say that if somebody had walked up to me and said, Jeff, do you believe in witches? I would have said, of course not. If they'd have said, do you believe in uh, demons? I would have said, of course not. I would have thought them to be wacky, flakes, fanatical. In my worldview back in Wichita, Kansas, where I grew up, I had heard about Casper, Casper the Friendly Ghost, the cartoon. I knew about him. And uh, the Tasmanian Devil, I knew about him. And, of course, Disney, there was something about Disney that was otherworldly a little bit, sort of magical, sort of mysterious, right? You know, that, that whole thing that's going on. But when I became a Christian, I started meeting people that were educated sane, normal people like you are, like I am. And they would talk to me about demons and witches and angels. And most of them had true-to-life encounters or credible stories that they could tell about what I'm going to call this morning this other world, this unseen world, this invisible world. Now, if I'm really spooking some of you out, just, just hold on to your seat, please. Just be patient. Because you're probably going to get more Scripture this morning than you've had in a long, long time because I, this whole thing has to be documented with Scripture. When I became a student of the Word and was baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to walk in the Spirit, this, this other dimension, this other realm, it's the unseen world, it's the invisible world, became very, very real to me. Um, the Bible presupposes beings in an unseen world. From Genesis to Revelation, it's in there. The whole, the whole. It starts out in Genesis chapter 3 with the serpent deceiving Eve, right? Remember that? Um, it's in Genesis chapter 3. And in fact, all the way at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, it tells us who the serpent is. Uh, do we have that 12, Revelation 12? The great dragon was hurled down, and then it says that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. It's there from Genesis. You go on in the book of Genesis, and the next thing you know, there's angels in Sodom. And then you go on a little farther in chapter 28, I think it is, and first thing you know, there's angels ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder. And whether you're in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or whether you're moving through the historical books or the wisdom literature and the poetic books or whether you're looking at the prophets or whether you're looking at the epistles or whether you're looking at the gospels, all the way to the book of Revelation, you're running into beings of this invisible, unseen world. I'll tell you why this is so important to us and where we live as we move on, but just, just stay with me. The point is, is that the Bible never tries to defend the idea of a spirit world. It never tries to convince you that there's a spirit world. And do you know why that is? Because it presupposes it's extant. It exists. It just is. And what I want to say to you this morning, among other things, is the spirit world, the unseen realm, is not a distant reality. It is an immediate present among us. Now stop and think about that. 
The unseen world is not a distant reality. It is a present among us. So let's look at Jesus' many. Does Jesus align with everything I've said so far? So you look at that real quickly, and here's that, here's that passage. I, we don't have to go back to it, but Luke 2, 13 and 14, where the angels came to Zacharias and Joseph and Mary. And before his ministry, and Jesus went into the desert to be tested and tempted of the devil. You'll remember that in Matthew chapter 4. And uh, the devil, I like the clash of the kingdoms here uh, in this, because you remember, he says, well, you've been fasting 40 days, so turn this stone into bread. no. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And so then he takes him on the top of a high pinnacle and then he takes him and shows him the kingdom of the world and he keeps saying, it is written, it is written, it is risen. And then when that whole passage concludes, you see this conflict of kingdoms because it says there that the devil left him and the angels came and ministered to him. The devil left him and the angels came and ministered to him. During his ministry, he frequently cast out demons, which are wicked, unclean, disembodied spirits, if you want a definition of them. They can oppress or they can possess. And significantly, when Jesus sent his apostles out and his disciples out, if you look at Matthew 10, 7, and 8, He said this, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Jesus said that to them. And uh, that was to the apostles when he sent the 70 out, two by two in Luke 10, 17. He said this, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Some of us this morning are thinking, well, that was back then. It wasn't a first world developed country. Um, There was a lot of paganism and, and they just believed in that kind of stuff. And it's just really not real in 21st century America. It's just, just not real. To believe in the impossible, to believe in the supernatural, to believe in the miraculous, you have to be able to see what is not seen. That's a really profound statement. And it may go over a lot of heads here, but just stop and think about that. To believe in the supernatural, the miraculous, the impossible, we sang about it this morning, to believe in the impossible, you have to be able to see what is unseen. And I'm not talking about with your natural eyes, okay? I'm talking about with your spiritual eyes. How can you fight these enemies? We read our texts this morning. How can you fight those enemies, principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in high places? How can you fight them if you don't even believe they're there? If you don't even think that realm exists? Just just stop and consider that. And so we live our life routinely thinking that the invisible world is not there. Turn with me, if you will, or let's look at it on the overhead. 2 Kings 6, 18 to 17. 2 Kings 6, 18 to 17. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. This is a really cool story. So the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Aramins are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me which of us on the side of the king, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? Now, if you, do you get what's happening? He thinks there's a traitor in their midst. He thinks there's a, uh, somebody's given away their positions, where they are, and what they're doing. And the king is saying, Who inside is betraying uh, where we're going and what we're doing? Now, let's keep reading here. So none of us, my lord, king, said one of the officers, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. That's In New Testament language, he would say, Elisha, the prophet, has a word of wisdom. There's difference between the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom. A word of knowledge, 1 Corinthians 12, 9, 
of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when it gives the nine gifts of the Spirit. The word of knowledge is when you are given by the Holy Spirit information or facts about something present or something that's previously happened. But a word of wisdom is when you are given information that speaks into the future about something that's going to happen. And Elisha the prophet obviously has been given the ability by the Holy Spirit to discern things that are and things that are going to be. So none of us, my Lord, the king, said one of the officers, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there, and they went by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots has surrounded the city. That sounds a little bit like the song we sang this morning, doesn't it? We, we feel like we're surrounded by the enemy, but it's really God surrounding us. Oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. We're surrounded by these horses. Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw that the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Okay, it's an Old Testament story. Is there a New Testament parallel? I'd like you to look, if you would, at 2 Corinthians 4, 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And let's go to Colossians 1, 16. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and what? Help me out with that word. Did, did I just hear what Paul, the apostle, wrote to the church at Colossae? He created all things in heaven and on earth. He created things visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Notice in the Colossians passage that it, it sort of reminds you of the Lord's Prayer where it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is being done in heaven. See, most of us assume we're to just live routinely in this natural realm in our senses, right? I see it, I hear it, I smell it, I taste it, or I touch it. That's our natural world. That's our cosmos. In the Greek, it's the orderly system of things as God created them. And we really don't think that our life has much to do at all with this unseen world until we die. And when we die, we'll go to heaven and we'll worry about that stuff later. And that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. That is absolutely exactly what Satan wants you to think. I know, I'm, I'm hearing you, hold on, I'm not aware of in, any darkness or evil in my life. In fact, I love, I love my world. I love what's going on. Love my family, love my job, love my church, love my community. You know, I'm a happy camper. I love nature. You know, all, all is good, all is well. It's true, by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, and by land taken through spiritual warfare, by saints that battle continually in heavenly places. You see, when you win battles in the heavenlies, it transforms things in the earthlies. You remember the Old Testament story of Joshua down in the valley fighting against the Amalekites, I think it was. Maybe it was the Midianites, I forget. And Moses is on the top of the hill with the rod of God, and his arms get weary, and Aaron and Hur hold his arms up. Joshua wasn't winning the battle down in the valley, down in the earthlies. It was Moses on top of the hill with the rod of God. And the Bible says every time he lifted the rod, Joshua prevailed. But when his arms got tired and he lowered the rod, they started to lose the battle. 
It's because you win the battle in the heavenlies, in this, this dimension of the unseen world. We war. We are called to war, fight, and to win battles. Your adversary, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 John 5.19, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. In fact, in John 12 and John 14, Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul calls him the God of this age. So who is Satan? Well, Satan means adversary. He rebelled against God, was cast out of earth, fell with one-third of the angels. Satan now has an organized, orderly hierarchy, a kingdom of darkness, and his agenda is two things, control and rule. How does that relate to you? He wants to control things that you can't control. Examine your lifestyle. Examine your life. Are you out of control in any area? Does something control you rather than you controlling it? Enemies involved in that. Think about rule. He wants to rule. He wants to reign. He wants to be in charge. That's his, that's his agenda. The thief comes in but to kill, to steal, and to destroy. It's a hard word this morning, isn't it? I know it is. The enemy's agenda is to oppose the work of God. And you make yourselves an additional target because you're willing to serve God and walk with him. If you're sowing wild oats out there somewhere, he probably is not going to be chasing you down and following after you too much. But the closer you draw to the kingdom of God, the more you penetrate the kingdom of light and push back darkness, the more you war to take ground and land back from the enemy, the more he's going to attack you, and always in your weakest areas. Always in your weakest areas. His agenda is not only to oppose God's work generally, but it's to oppose God's work in you. It's to oppose God's work in you. And so we are commanded, like for instance in James 4, 7, to resist the devil. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It doesn't work to be passive. It doesn't work to be passive. You can't, you can't walk a fence. You're not going anywhere if you walk a fence. You know, think about the Ephesians 6 armor of God and tell me which pieces of armor are on the backside. Are there any? It's all on the front side, and that's because we are to be offensive in the, off, offensive in the kingdom of God. <laughs> no play on words there. You know, the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit and the helmet and the feet shod and the loins girt with truth. I mean, it's all for the offensive to penetrate the kingdom of God. That's what, that's what we're called to do. That's what, how we're called to fight. And the Holy Spirit has given us weapons to do that. And this morning, we're only going to talk about three of them briefly. Um, there's six of them, but I just want to talk to you about three of them that I think are just, just huge, absolutely huge. And it's, it's really, it's, it's uh, first grade in the kingdom. It's, it's kindergarten or first grade stuff. But if you, it's easy to forget, isn't it? It's real easy to forget and just sort of, go on our merry way and not think about it. And I just want to begin with this first arrow in the quiver, the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Let me say it so clearly you don't miss it. Hear me. There is power in the name of Jesus when it's said in faith and reverence. I did not know that when I came to Christ. Most new believers don't know that. But I heard some songs that made my spirit sort of think that it was true. Uh, one of the earliest songs I learned was Jesus is, it's an oldie. Jesus was the sweet, is the sweetest name I know. There's a hymn in the old hymn books. We don't sing hymns much anymore, but there's a hymn, Take the Name of Jesus With You. 
Lydia Baker wrote that back in the 1800s. She was bedridden. But she always had joy on her face. She always was just uplifted and happy. And, and they ask her, how can you be that way when you're sick and bedridden? She says, oh, I have a secret armor. The name of Jesus. There's power. There's power in the name of Jesus. Look at Philippians 2.9. It's a name at which every name falls beneath. It's a name that is above every name. Look at Acts 4.12. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Look at Acts 3, 1 through 8. It's the story of uh, Peter and John walking up to the gate beautiful and the lame man was there. And you'll remember he asked for alms. Uh, I'll, I'll let you flip through it, Don, and I'll just sort of tell the story. And, and he asked for alms and Peter looked at him. He said, look at my eyes. And John looked at him, and he said, silver and gold I don't have. I don't have that. But what I have, I'm going to give you. And he said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the Bible says he went walking and leaping and praising God. Now, there was some discussion after this about how he got healed. And that's where this, this latter verse comes in, verse 16. Can we jump all the way down there? And the answer comes back, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can see. Isn't that powerful stuff? That's just powerful stuff. I was in a barber shop in Lodi, California in 1969. And uh, I've told this story here before, but there were there were three chairs and I was in the center and the owner of the shop whom I knew was a Christian and he was cutting my hair. And it was one of those things where everybody was talking, there was noise and chatter. And I said the name of Jesus just in casual conversation. But it so happened that everybody else had paused in their conversation and the name of Jesus, this wasn't a big barbershop. It was just like it echoed from wall to wall and ceiling to floor. And instantly, everybody was frozen solid. You could have heard a pin drop and it just stayed that way. Just because of the name of Jesus. When I was working for the Sherwin-Williams Corporation, I was uh, involved in credit and accounting and sales. And, and when there weren't enough salesmen out on the floor, I would get up and I would go out and wait on people on the floor. And I was out there on the floor waiting on a wholesale customer and one of our other store managers came in now I hope I don't want to offend any of the Navy guys some of you that we talked to earlier today but this guy was an, a, a Navy retiree and he still cussed like a sailor sailor I mean this guy had the filthiest mouth I've ever heard in my life but I, I worked with him and and he walked in and I, we got away from the customer and we were over here and he was asking me about something and he used his typical language and was swearing and taking the name of God and finally, I'd had enough, and it was almost like the Spirit prompted it instead of me thinking it through. And I said, Johnny, you have a filthy mouth. That's the name. You're taking the name of Jesus in vain, and I love him. And he looked at me like, what hit me? I worked with him for several years after that. I never once, after that, never once heard him cuss in front of me or take the name of Jesus again. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. I can think of three separate occasions when our family was in near accidents on the road. Now, these are situations where you don't have time to pray. I'm from the Midwest. We drove on ice and snow all the time. I don't get you crazy people. You need chains for this much snow. <laughs> I, it's just stupid. I mean, I'm used to driving in snow up past the headlights. I've done it all the time without chains or anything. But, but this was one of those occasions where it's black ice, and I, it's happened to me three times. You do not have time to pray. Dear Lord, uh, keep me safe right now. I'm about to be in this accident, and uh, don't forget that you're supposed to be with me, and please send angels to guard and protect. That's not what happened. It's, just, it's instinctive. It happens without you thinking. You're driving along, and all of a sudden, I'm in a 360 just down the highway. And all that came out of my mouth was, Jesus! And all of a sudden, the car just straightens up. Now, it doesn't happen every time. The name of Jesus isn't a die that you can cast or a charm that you can invoke. 
I'm not suggesting that, but I am telling you that there is sovereign power in the name of Jesus. John 16, 23b to 24. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive. We pray in his name. We speak in his name. We assault darkness in his name. There's power, light, and might in the name of Jesus. In 1432, there was a plague in Lisbon, Portugal. That was before they had ways to fight those plagues and people fled from Lisbon thinking they'd get away from it. And of course, what they did was they sent the plague all over the nation. And it was a desperate situation and there was this little monk named uh, Father Diaz um, in, in a monastery. And he just sent word out to Everybody all over the nation, just start speaking the name of Jesus. Just start speaking the name of Jesus. The people that were sick got healed, and the plague was aborted. It was stopped just because of the name of Jesus. I want to tell you, well, I'll give you Mark 16 just before I do this. And these signs will follow them who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. There it is again, in my name, in my name, in my name. I want to tell you, uh, we've just published a book this, this year, 2018, called Miracle Invasion. And we researched for actually three years hunting for these miracle stories that happened right here in North America. And um, we didn't want it to be something that happened on a foreign mission field. We didn't want it to be something that our grandma and grandpa told us about years ago. It needed to be contemporary and current and right now. And um, one of those stories happened in just in 2014. It's a very recent story. And Charles Holifield was the man to whom it happened. Um, and he was in Chattanooga, Tennessee area. Uh, wonderful Christian man. He was a senior citizen. Those of you that are senior citizens, you know what that means, right? And uh, he went to his, neuro he started getting these terrible headaches, these insane headaches that he couldn't stand, and he went to a neurologist. And um, the leading neurologist at Erlinger Medical Center in Chattanooga had never had a patient like him. He said, he said, I've done this for years. I've never had somebody over 60 years of age come down with migraine headaches. And they've got rid of the idea that it was an aneurysm and got rid of the idea that it was a stroke. And finally, after seeing three different neurologists, they said, this is chronic migraine headaches and we don't have a cure for you. We don't have a cure for you. Now, as time moved on, he fights this battle for over two years. He loses the ability to drive, the ability to mow. He can't use his shop and use power tools. He frequently falls and cuts himself severely because the debilitating pain just causes him to stagger. His wife, Mary, packs his head in ice for hours at a time. Uh, he's always in a dark room instead of a light room. This thing, this thing is totally taking away his life from him. He was a uh, lay pastor and counselor, and he worked with men that... Uh, were addicted or in prison. And he heard, he was over two years into this battle, and he heard that they were going to such and such a correction center. And he told his wife, he says, Mary, I'm going to go to that service today. He said, it may kill me, but at least I'm not going to die in a dark room. I'm going to die in a jail. And so he got in his car, and he started driving, and it was erratic, and he was filled with pain. And when he got there, he wasn't scheduled to speak, but when they were done with the worship, he asked the speaker if he could just stand up and say three or four sentences. And he stood up and he said to the men, he says, I'm in pain. Some of you here know how to pray. Will you please pray for me? And he sat down. The speaker got up to speak to these men that were incarcerated in this correction center. And as he starts to speak, he's interrupted by a young man way in the back who's very thin and slender. He has tattoos from his knuckles to his ears on both sides of his body. And he just quietly, without anybody's permission, he just walks to the front where Charles Holifield is sitting down. 
And he puts his hand on him, and it quiet. Everybody in the room now is quiet. The man's not preaching. And they all listen as he prays out loud. And I've, I've got the prayer written down. It's much better if I read to you exactly what he said, but I'll just I'll paraphrase it. He said, devil, you don't belong here. This is a jail service. You think you belong here, but you don't belong here. And in Jesus' name, I command you. And he said, in Jesus' name, I command you to leave him and give up this territory. We're taking back the ground of his health in Jesus' name. He was not a charismatic guy. He wasn't jumping and shouting. There was no worship music in the background. And he just quietly returned to his seat. And Charles Holyfield testifies that in a flash of a single moment when he said, in Jesus' name, his headache disappeared, and to this day, he's never had another one. After a two-plus-year battle. Here's a man that thinks he's going through a routine health problem. A routine health problem. And all the time, the devil has taken territory, has taken ground. And this young, probably relatively new Christian prays for him. And I love it. I've got stories after stories like that. I want to go to the second arrow real quickly. I want to go to the blood of Jesus. The second arrow in the quiver of the Lord is the blood of Jesus. Critics have accused us as Christians of having a bloody religion. You've heard that before. We have, well, they're right. They're absolutely right. Bring it on. Leviticus 17.11 says this, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you. That's God speaking to his people. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you. Now, I like action-adventure movies. I probably should admit that, because the rating on them is not always the best. But I just like action-adventure, and even though I'm an Eagle Scout, and I've had first-aid training, and I know that the very first thing you do you come upon an accident, you see somebody that whacks themselves with an axe or, or cuts themselves with a knife when they're running with it and they shouldn't. First thing you learn about knives is you're never moving when an open blade is there. You stand still or else you close the blade. Okay, so here's the deal. Wow. About the action-adventure movie, I just... that. If you haven't been in Scouts, if you haven't had first aid, you just watch any movie where somebody's cut or bleeding, comes on an accident, and you can just pick it up off TV. Stop the blood. Direct pressure. Push on it. It's instinctive. Why? Because if you bleed out, you're going to die. Life. Life. Life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. God accepted Abel's offering over Cain's because life was in the blood. In the Old Testament law, they would kill the, the lamb or the ewe or the turtle doves or whatever, and they would sprinkle the blood on the altar because life is in the blood. The final plague, the ten plagues, the final plague in the Exodus story for Israel to get out of Egypt was the death angel passing over. And he said, you know what, Israel? If you will kill a lamb and sprinkle the blood on the lintels of the doorposts. Let's, re let's read it. See what it says in this passage. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. It says in the old translations, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. It says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. None. You know, just think about that for a minute. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That means nobody's sin. Without the shedding of Jesus' blood, nobody's sin is covered. But because his blood was shed, if you accept his blood and Jesus as your Savior, you don't have to spend one second at the judgment seat. You don't have to spend one second in hell 
because you're covered by the blood. There's power in the blood. Most people don't realize that the blood actually speaks. It cries out. Genesis 4.10. I'm not going to take the time to go to it, but Genesis 4.10 actually says, God is talking and he says, Cain, where's your brother? He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me. Blood speaks. And that's repeated in, in, in the book of Hebrews too. It's a primary, primary truth of Scripture. What insight it gives us. I want to tell you a quick story about the song, There's Power in the Blood. There's Power in the Blood. Um, that was written in 1899 by a guy named Lewis who spent most of his lifetime working for the Young Men's Christian Association. He wrote hymns on the side. And uh, the story is told that, true story, um, preaching David Hillis was a missionary preaching in a small village in China and he had a co-worker with him by the name of uh, of Kong Mr. Kong K-O-N-G and while David Hillis who knew nothing about demon possession at all was preaching in this village in China there was a shriek that they heard outside the room a scream a terrifying scream and shriek and Dr. Kong was aware of this case, and he says, don't worry, David, there's a man possessed by a devil, and that's probably what this is about. The missionary speaker didn't believe it because he didn't understand it. He didn't know it. But then a woman came running in the room, disrupted the service, and said, my husband is being attacked by a demon. Please come and help him. So they went into the village, and as Mr. Kong and David Hillis, the missionary, walked into the door of this uh, of this." Uh, whatever it was, little house or little whatever it was, they had to step over this old filthy dog, this mutt that was right at the doorway. They stepped over that and they went inside. There were onlookers in the room and sure enough, this man was just, just going crazy, going wild, demented. And uh, so Mr. Kong said, David, he brought his guitar with him. He said, start playing and singing. There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power. And so he laid hands on him and he began to pray uh, for this man to be delivered. And uh, without going through the whole story, as they prayed and as they sought the Lord and as they commanded the devil to come out, all of a sudden this dog back at the entrance of the door starts yapping, starts screaming, starts running in circles and trying to bite its own tail jumped up into the air and fell down dead. And it instantly reminded them of the passage in Luke. Did I, did I ask for that passage in Luke? You remember the demoniac of the Gadarenes and he was cast into the herd of swine? This is the only story I know like that story, but it's, it's authenticated and recorded. I have a friend in uh, Pastor Shannon Truelove, who has a small denomination in the East. He pastors in Hartford, Michigan, and he's had an experience where um, a woman at, in the prayer service at the end of the sermon, a woman was wheeled in a wheelchair down the main aisle, and as she got closer, uh, the man pushing her, as, as she got closer, a voice started coming out of her said, we're not going to let her go. We're not going to let her go. She's ours. And it was a low voice. It wasn't a woman's voice. And, and he knew that it was a demon. So he asked his worship team to start playing. There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. And uh, she was crippled. She couldn't walk. As they prayed for her, she fell out of her chair onto the floor. And they continued to pray for her. And uh, 20 minutes into it, she just woke up, sat up, had this beautiful smile, this glow on her face, stood up, and said, what's happened to me? Where have I been? And she was a totally different woman. She got up. She walked out the church. She came back. She's still attending the church. She's serving the Lord. And, it, and that, re, that is reminiscent of when Jesus was speaking. I forget whether it's Luke 8 or Luke 13. But it says, uh, do I have that as one of the verses? On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. So we live our life routinely and somebody's disabled, somebody's crippled, and we make the assumption that it's a physical malady. And it probably is. 
But not in every case. Not in every case. Crippled by a spirit for 18 years. And the last, the last arrow in the quiver of the Lord. The name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. We sang about this this morning. Praise and worship. Wow. What I want to say to you more than anything is don't stand on the sidelines. You've got to enter in. Praise and worship. You've got to enter in. You have to enter in. You see, the 12 tribes of Israel, they would camp in this form of a cross. Three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west, and each of them had a banner or a standard. And Dan was, uh, Judah was in the north, and Judah's banner was a lion, of course, because of the lion of the tribe of Judah. But you know what the name Judah means? It means praise. And whenever the cloud of glory moved out in front of Israel, whether they were going to another encampment or whether they were going to fight a war, Judah always went first. Think about that. It was commanded in Scripture that Judah always went first, and that's because praise and worship beats back the enemy. It's one of the greatest weapons that we have in that specific order for marching. In 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat and Judah were attacked by Moab and Ammon. And the king prayed and fasted and called the people to join him in battle. And then it says in 2 Chronicles 20, 21 and 22, it says, He appointed those to sing in praise as they went out before the army. They went out before the army. In Psalm 8, 2, it says, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe. You remember what Saul did when he became tormented? Who did he call for? To play his harp, to sing and worship. You know, the, the spirits that are working against us, demon spirits, unclean spirits that are fighting against us, they're not just always bad guys like in the sense of a spirit of suicide, let's say. Sometimes they're a spirit of, of uh, distress, spirit of rejection. There's, there's all kinds of things going on around us that we're not aware of, and that's why in our text it said casting down imaginations and everything that brings it against God and bringing every thought into captivity of obedience of Christ because our mind is where the battle is. That's where the battle is, in your mind. You can win the battle in praise and worship. When you, get, when you really get into praise and worship, it takes your eyes off the battle and onto Christ, the victor, and it also multiplies faith. It'll do that every time. Just learn to praise your hands, clap your hands. If you have to, dance. Uh, what, whatever is required for you to break free in praise and worship, don't sit on the sidelines and do that. Do you remember Silas and Paul in the prison? You remember Silas and Paul down there at midnight in the prison? They were locked up. It was the midnight hour. It was dark, lonely. They were hungry. They were in pain. The circumstances were absolutely hopeless. The earth began to shake and the chains broke loose because of praise and worship and singing at the midnight hour. So we have the name of Jesus. We have the blood of Jesus. And we have praise and worship. All of them have a proven history of defeating the enemy and taking back ground. And that's where I am this morning. As I prayed for you and as I prayed about this message, uh, these are really hard messages to give. You always have opposition, always. I've sensed opposition here all morning long. Satan doesn't want a message like this preached. Of course he doesn't. Or taught. We've been, done, we've been doing as much teaching as we've been doing preaching this morning. But let me tell you, if you're living your life routinely with no thought whatsoever about the darkness that is aligned against you, then Satan is just delighted. 
He's, he's happy. He's fine. You're not pushing back the enemy, and you're not taking ground. And some of you here, this is what my heart is broken about. Some of you here this morning, you've lost ground. You have a child that's a prodigal, and he or she should not be. They were taught to love God and to love the scriptures and to make good choices based on a biblical worldview. And there's no real explanation why they're not following Jesus today except that the enemy won some ground. All he needs is a finger hold or a toe hold. And he, see, the scriptures talk about his schemes, his wiles, his strategies. Some of you have lost ground in your marriage. Never happens all at once. It's not one big thing that happens all at once. It just leaks, leaks out a little here, a little there. You have to work at a marriage. You have, to, you have to date. You have to be romantic. You have to talk, communicate. You have to work at it. And if you're not willing to do that and you just give ground, Satan will take it. Because remember, he is the ruler of this world. He's the prince and the power of the air. He's the god of this age. He's the one that wants to control and wants to rule. And I'm just not willing to give him the ground that doesn't belong to him anymore. So let's stand together, shall we? He's not just the Lord. He's the Lord of hosts. And the Bible says there's an innumerable company of angels ready to battle on his behalf. So Isaiah 54 verse 17 says, No weapon formed against you can prosper. And any tongue that rises up against you shall be condemned. So I'm going to be letting everybody go now. Uh, but before I do that, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask anybody here that wants special prayer. If you've lost ground in your family, in your job, your finances, your health, you know, whatever. If you've lost ground that belongs to God and you've claimed it and he shouldn't have it, then come up. We won't make a big show of it. We're not going to pray a long time. But in the name of Jesus, by the authority of the blood of Jesus, we're going to praise that ground right back into your camp. Father, thank you for your word this morning. The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus, you said the Spirit of the Lord was upon you to open prison doors and to set captives free. You gave the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. If anybody is here this morning, Lord, with a spirit of gloom or doom or discouragement or distress or depression, Lord, in Jesus' name, you gave the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Jesus, we take back ground by faith right now in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. By the authority of the blood of Jesus. We praise you and give you thanks in advance for the victory and the triumph that will be won here today. Amen, amen, amen.